find Isaiah 40 and put a finger there and then turn to Acts chapter 4. I'm gonna, I want to talk to you tonight about a Christian response to political trials. Christian response to political trials. And uh, what I want you to do in Acts, find chapter 4, and then we're going to concentrate on verse 31, but I want us to start reading, nevertheless, at verse 23. Acts 4, 23. And then also put a finger in Isaiah 40 for later on. A Christian response to political trials. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You've heard, no doubt, the name William Carey. Yes? Yes. William Carey. Often called what? You know what he's referred to as in modern times? The father of modern missions. Or the father of the modern missionary movement. He faced a disappointment of huge proportions while on the mission field. He began his missionary career in India in 1793. Uh, he labored in the country for 40 continuous years, never once returning to his native England. He was a, a prolific translator of Scripture. And in fact, he translated portions of Scripture into over a dozen Indian languages. Imagine learning that many languages of India and then translating scripture into all of those languages. Well, one afternoon after being 20 years in the country, a fire raged through his office area and his printing area. His equipment was destroyed, but even more important than that, his manuscripts were destroyed. Uh, of course, he had no computer backup files like we would have today. And so everything was gone. 20 years of labor 
up in flames. Now, how would he respond to a crushing defeat like this? Well, he wrote to a pastor friend of his, Andrew Murray. You've probably read that name before. Andrew Murray, famous for his books on prayer. And uh, Andrew Murray was still in England. He wrote to Andrew uh, Murray. He said, the ground must be labored over again. But we're not discouraged. We have all been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavor to improve this, our affliction, last Lord's Day from Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I principally dwell upon these two ideas. First, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as He pleases. And secondly, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. That's a good response to disappointment, isn't it? How do you respond to disappointment? How do you respond to hardship or suffering or the difficulties in life? Well, as, as we look tonight at this text in Acts chapter 4, we see how the church responded to a particular situation. Now, what was the situation? What happened in the previous narrative? Do you, do you remember that from our study in Acts a couple of years back? What had happened in chapter 3? The healing of the beggar, which caused quite an uproar. And the result of that was what, what did the authorities do with, with uh, Peter and John? They arrested them. Exactly. And, and threw them in jail. Uh, when they took them out of prison the next day, they let them go, but in the Says, you remember what they charged them to do or not to do? Not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Now, on a side note again, the title tonight, A Christian Response to Political Tribes. Responding to Political Tribes. Now, granted, there's a lot of different kinds of tribes. Their trial was a political trial. Their trial was a trial dealing with the authorities. And the authorities told them what? Not to preach Jesus anymore. I titled what I did tonight... Uh, such as it is, because I truly believe that we are on the verge in America of losing some of our religious freedoms. Religious freedom, in some sense, is very much in discussions today. I don't know how much you've been paying attention to what's going on around the country. 
But there are some radical voices on the left that would like nothing more to clamp down even more on churches. Lest you think I'm creating a straw man, just read some of what has happened in recent days with Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. If you have been following their battles some with the local government. Uh, fortunately, they've just won a case. But folks... Some of what we're seeing, we're at least on the cliff of or a crossroads at some point of some things being challenged in America when it comes to our religious liberties. If not now, probably in soon coming years or decades. Now, our typical reaction is to do what? We have it coming up very soon. Our typical reaction is we got to make sure we either get the right people in office or keep the right people in office. That's our typical response, right? But I want you to notice something. That's not the response that we see tonight. Now, I'm not denigrating Christians voting. That's our civic duty. And they didn't have some of the freedoms back then that we do today. If they would have had some of the political freedoms and clout that we do today, they would have probably done some of the similar things we do. But they didn't have this. But they had something even better, which we're going to look at tonight. They did something that is bigger than whatever is going on in your nation at a given time. And it's bigger than whoever happens to be in charge. Well, back to the text. The authorities said what to them? Quit preaching. Obviously, Peter and John denied their request and responded that they must obey God rather than man. They went back to their church body. They reported what had happened, and the church despaired. Right? No. 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 What did the church do? Prayed. 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 Our response to trials of any kind ought to be what? To pray. Jesus said in Luke 18, men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up, not to grow discouraged. And the early church displayed that kind of faith. Now, let's see tonight how they faced life and the trials of life. They, you know, there's an old saying, uh, handle life with care? Well, they handled life with prayer. That's better, isn't it? Folks, we learn that as God's people, we need to face the pressures of the world by trusting God regardless of the outcome. 
They saw the power of God unleashed as they prayed. And that's a powerful lesson to us as well. We will see the power of God unleashed as we pray. And so the first thing I want you to see tonight is the prayer. You know, it, it says, my, like I said, I, wanted to, I want to highlight verse 31 when they had prayed. But to get the prayer, when it says when they prayed to see what they prayed, you have to go back to verse 23 to actually see their prayer. Because the prayer actually is from verse 23 to verse 30. They were facing the unbelief of their society. Not only did they have the challenges of getting the name of Jesus out and preaching the gospel to, to men as Jesus had instructed them to do in the Great Commission, but in addition to that, they were facing the hostilities of the governing authorities. Again, they had none of the freedoms that we do today. Will we always have them? I don't know. Just another concerning example I'll give you of something that happened right here in America a few years back. The IRS reached some kind of agreement. People have been trying to find out exactly what the agreement was. But some kind of agreement with the Freedom From Religion Organization. The Freedom From Religion Organization is an atheistic organization. Uh, some have sued to try to find out, you know, what was in that agreement. But what does seem to be known, the IRS promised the Freedom From Religion group that they would somewhat begin targeting churches. And targeting churches that engage in political activity. But there's the rub. Because here's what they've defined as political activity. A church that stands up for pro-life. A church that stands up for traditional marriage between a man or a woman. Even if we're preaching a biblical text. If we're not... if, if Engaging in politics is not even what we're doing. We're preaching a text. But if it's a text on traditional marriage between a man and a woman, or we're talking about pro-life, that's going to be a definition of political activity. A church engaging in political activity. Now, I find it difficult, at least for now, to imagine that they'll make headway or succeed. But who knows? Folks, I'm just telling you, there are groups out there that are trying to get religious liberty issues diminished. And Christians had better wake up. We may, we may 
facing situations, I don't know. I'm not a, as Dr. Cooper said Sunday, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I do work for a nonprofit. <laughs> but you wonder if we're closer maybe to some of the challenges in the book of Acts than we might realize. Or these may be battles our children or grandchildren will face. You know, unfortunately, one of the basic tenets in society today is secular humanism. It's, that's been around for a long time. You know, it says man is good and he's getting better and better and he's able to solve more and more of his problems by his own intellect. And he doesn't need God. And all these God is dead philosophies that used to be out there, they didn't mean by that that God had died. What they meant was that man has outgrown his need of God. That's what the God is dead camps were trying to say. That we've outgrown, we've matured as the human race to where we just don't need God. This is some of the mentality that we see in cultures today. It also operates from the premise that biblical Christianity is actually bad for society. There have been some recent groups making that innuendo, that biblical Christianity, if the church carries out the tenets of biblical Christianity, it'd be bad for society. So folks, that's just some of the things we face today. Now, in response to an unbelieving world, we see how effective the early church was. The early church had none of the conveniences we have today, none of the organization, none of the technology, but what they did have was God's power. God poured out His power on them because they were a praying church. It's been said before that before you talk to men about God, you need to first talk to God about men. They were a praying church. Just survey it in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, verse 12, while they were waiting on what to do next, after Jesus had ascended back to the Father, what were they doing? They were praying. And near the close of chapter 1, when they were choosing a replacement for Judas, how did they conduct themselves in that? By praying. <clears throat> in chapter 2, when, it, when Luke gives us a snapshot, he gives us a summary account about life inside the church and what their daily and weekly activity looked like, what did Luke highlight about that in chapter 2, verse 42? that they were a praying fellowship. And then in chapters 3 and 4, when they faced this trial, this opposition from the governing authorities, how did they respond to that? By praying. Their praying was united. Verse 24 here says that it was in one accord. 
You didn't know Hondas were in the Bible. <laughs> they were all in one accord. <laughs> Verse 24 also says it was fervent. They raised their voices. They were crying out to God. Verse 24 also says it was believing. They were calling on Sovereign Lord. Look at the affirmations they made in their prayer. They say Sovereign Lord. What are they recognizing here? God's made everything. God's in control. In fact, the word that they used here, the, the, the Greek text that Luke wrote here, is the word despota or despot. What's a despot? An absolute king. And that's what they're saying of God. He's absolute king, ruler, master, sovereign. They're recognizing who God is. I had you put a finger at Isaiah 40. I love Isaiah 40 talking about this subject of God being sovereign. This contrast that he makes. But before he does that, uh, notice that he says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. What's a span? The distance between your little finger and your thumb. Span. He's marked off the heavens with a span. Think of that. All the oceans he's marked off and measured out in the hollow of his hand. He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Verse 14 says, Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding? Rhetorical questions. The answer to that is obviously nobody. Nobody's God's counselor. You know, Paul talks about that at the end of Romans chapter 11, doesn't he? No, nobody's ever been God's counselor. God doesn't need men's counsel. He says here, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. Verse 18, a contrast. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. Goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. You go on and on and on reading in Isaiah 40, and what's, what's the prophet talking about? The sovereignty of God. He's absolute ruler, creator, and sovereign Lord and master. And what I'm saying is when 
in the book of Acts, they go to God praying because the earthly authorities are telling them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They go to the Lord and they say, Lord, you're the true governing authority. You're sovereign God. We're turning to you. You know, the rulers and religious leaders thought they were in charge of killing Jesus. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. And it was God's plan from the foundation of the world, the Bible says, that it should happen that way. Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. That was God's eternal plan. And so... What the Bible is saying here, if God is in charge of all of these events, of creation, of all the nations of the world, of all the rulers in the world, of the crucifixion of Jesus, if God's in charge of all that, they're saying, God, you're certainly in charge of our situation too. Lord, when we consider who you are and what you've done, what we're facing is really nothing for you to handle. You're the true authority, God. Folks, regardless of elections, regardless of who's in power on earth, whatever nation you want to talk about, regardless of human authorities, who's in charge? God, God is. God's sovereign. And you know what Proverbs 21.1 says? God can direct the heart of a king the, the way when he planned out, created the rivers and directed the course of the rivers. God, God can direct the hearts of leaders. They're expressing faith in God, that God sees that He acts according to His sovereign will. They're saying, God, these authorities are not in charge. You are. Folks, that's a lesson for us in our praying. And when we pray, we need to know that God hears and God will answer. Now, sometimes God's answer is a no. Sometimes it's a not yet. It's yes, but not yet. Sometimes God's saying, I'm going to answer it a little different than you expect. And sometimes it's yes, I'm going to answer exactly the way you're asking. But the fact of the matter is, God hears the prayers of His people and God answers. What we need to do is stand back and wait after we pray and pay very close attention to circumstances, don't we? Sometimes we get down on our knees and we pray about something. We get up and go our own way. 
And we're not even paying attention to what's happening around us. What's happening around us may, God may be using people and circumstances to answer the prayer that we just prayed yesterday, something about. They also acknowledge here that not only is God sovereign that he hears, but they're also acknowledging in their prayer here that God speaks. God is not silent. And God is also able to do miracles. And they ask God for boldness. Far from shrinking back from what the authorities have told them, they're asking that God would give them more boldness. They're praying, in other words, for God's agenda to be advanced and that they could be instruments in God's hands to carry out His purposes. Isn't that how prayer ought to be? James says a lot of times we don't see answers to prayer. Why? Because he says, for one thing, you don't ask. But then he says, when you do ask, what do you do? You, you said it, I believe. You pray amiss. Ask amiss. That you might get things to consume upon your lust. James goes on to talk about how we can be friends of the world, and if we're friends of the world, we're enemies of God. And sometimes how that mindset even comes into our praying. <clears throat> And so again, their prayer here, they're recognizing God is the real authority. God is the one directing the affairs of men and the affairs of nations. He's the real authority. Now, secondly, I want you to notice the power. Back to verse 31. It says, when they prayed, what happened? The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. When did they see the power of God? After they prayed. In fact, the Greek text actually points out here that even as they were praying, God was moving. Folks, think about that. Even as you're taking some of your burdens and trials to God, even as you are praying, unknown to you at the time, God is already moving. Some of the examples the Bible gives of prayers, God moving. Elijah, what happened with Elijah? James, I mentioned James a moment ago. What, what does James say about Elijah in James chapter 5? He said he asked that it not rain. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then, then he prayed that it would rain and God gave rain. Then Elisha, you know, Elijah's servant, who was the next prophet. You know, the mantle of Elijah fell on Elisha. 
And remember when the armies of Benadad, the armies of Syria, were surrounding the place where Elisha was, and Elisha's servant was there, and he went out. Because the armies had come to get Elisha. Because they knew that what they were planning to do next against Israel, Elisha was able to tell the leaders in Israel God's plan and how the Syrians could be defeated. And the Syrians thought, at first, what been a bad thing? I've got a traitor in my camp. And they said, no, Master, but there's a prophet in Israel. You know, what, what you do in the privacy of your bedroom, he's able to shout out what's going on. And so then Benadad says, well, we better go get this prophet. If we're ever going to win against Israel, we got to go get this prophet and deal with him. So they've surrounded his house. And the servant sees the armies of Benadad out there and says, we're in trouble. And what's Elisha saying? God opened his eyes. He goes back. He says, open his eyes, God. He tells his servant, there's more with us than with them. And the servant's like, more with us. One, two. <laughs> I count two. I count two here in this house, but I look out here and I see all these armies of, of Benadad. And what did Elisha say? God opened his eyes. And God opened his eyes and he saw. And God, God helped him, right? Delivered him. You remember what happened then? Remember what happened? Didn't you go in a chariot to Edmund? No, that was Elijah. <laughs> but, you know, blinded Benadad's troops and Elisha was able to lead them right to Israel's armies. Point is, the Bible is filled with powerful, powerful answers to prayer. That when God's people pray, things happen. God moves when we pray. I read a number of years ago about John Rakyahana. Quite a mouthful of a name. He was a, a bishop in Rwanda. He's served in, in uh, Uganda during the brutal reign of uh, Idi Amin. Uh, Idi Amin targeted 200,000 political opponents, Christian leaders, members of certain ethnic groups, targeted them for extermination. One day the government soldiers came for John, and he remembers one put the cold barrel of a gun against my ear and held his finger on the trigger. They put me in a vehicle and made me sit on top of explosives. As we began moving, I thought, even the slightest jolt and I'm dead. Well, the soldiers finally released John thinking we've intimidated him enough. He won't preach anymore. He won't speak out. Well, what the oppressors meant for evil, God used for good. Two days after John's experience with the authorities, 
He walked into the local cathedral and there, there weren't empty pews because of intimidation. Hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people had gathered to hear him because they thought after the authorities have intimidated our bishop like they have, we want to go and see what he does to see if he's going to preach. He ended up getting to preach to more than ever before. God moves. And then we see the presence. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and the, the presence. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Lord's presence was heavy on them. All through the book of Acts, you see this. It must have been exciting to be a part of the church. I mean, the Holy Spirit was really active among that early church. But again, what was the secret? They were a praying church. Folks, don't forget that. That's the key. Not everybody can be a rich church. Not everybody can be a big church. Not everybody can be strategically placed, maybe as well as some other group. But every church and every Christian can be a praying church and a praying man or a praying woman, right? That's something many of us can do. That was their secret. It can be our secret too. It can be your secret. You know, in the past, I've, I've, I've asked you before to set aside an hour during the week that you pray for our church. You pray for our leaders. I would add to that now, you pray for our nation. Just an hour a week. That's nothing. John Wesley considered it a wasted day if he had not prayed a minimum of four hours a day. It was a wasted day. You say, I don't have time to pray. You don't have time not to pray. God can do more in five minutes than you and I can do in a lifetime. I firmly believe when we pray as God's people, we will sense the presence of God as never before. Remember what Jesus told the disciples on one occasion about that demon-possessed boy? Lord, why couldn't we deal with this demon-possessed boy? And what did Jesus tell them? This kind comes out only by what? Prayer and fasting. The presence of God moving in on the people when they become a praying people. And again, all through the book of Acts, whatever the church is facing in the book of Acts. All the major movements of the book of Acts, you find the church in prayer. And then finally tonight, we see the proclamation. It says they all continue to speak the word of God with boldness. What did the authorities tell them to do? Be silent. Shut up. They said, we can't do that. 
They went back and told the church. The church prayed, recognized God as the true authority. And they said, God, give us more boldness. And that's exactly what God did. To the point that it says, they all spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, who was imprisoned? In chapter 3, Peter and John. But who speaks with boldness? All of them. Wasn't just Peter and John. They went back, reported to the church. They all prayed that God would give them more boldness. And that says they all spoke the word of God with boldness. God opened their mouths and he strengthened their witness. Folks, their witness became stronger through their prayers. Their witness did, did not become stronger simply through their human efforts. Their witness became stronger through their prayers. The only thing that explains what happened to them here, the only thing to make sense out of what happened here. God answered their prayer. It was God. It was a God thing. They didn't strategically say, you know, get their sheets of paper out or whatever, say, what, what, what are we doing? What do we need to be doing different? Oh, we need to change our strategy here and do that. Do that. No. The one thing they did here was pray. And God moved. And that explains what happened. What's Ephesians 3.20 say? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you can even ask or think. That's a good memory verse. Isn't it? God is able to do exceedingly. Notice, notice, notice the way Paul is piling up, piling up words here to describe. God's able to do abundantly. No, exceedingly abundantly. But just exceedingly abundantly. No, exceedingly abundantly more. More than we can ask. No. More than we can ask or think. Folks, again, nothing but God's power can explain what happened to the church in the book of Acts. God's power. God's power was unleashed when they prayed. <coughs> so whatever is ahead for the church in the climate we are in today, What's the need of the church? To pray. Become a person of prayer. And you know what that's going to take? Some adjustments on your part and my part. You're going to have to set aside some time to do it in your life. Whether you're a morning person or an afternoon person or a night person or whatever, you're going to have to 
set aside time to actually pray. Not just talk about praying. Actually pray. What adjustments are you going to need to make in your time, in your scheduling? You know, getting somewhere where you can get along with God. Away from distractions, away from cell phones, away from social media. My goodness, we need to get away from social media. <sighs> Is there a need in your life that's too big for you to handle? Take it to the Lord in prayer. You know, so oftentimes we do everything but pray. Don't we? It ought to be the first thing we do. Folks, remember, God is a despot. Now, among men, there's a negative application to that word, right? Because human dictators are almost always bad. God's a dictator. He's a despot. And we want it that way. Because He's good and kind and powerful and loving and His ways are perfect. He's an absolutely in charge. So whatever happens in the world, whatever happens in elections, whoever's in charge, whatever's going on in the world, whatever wars are being fought, whatever is going on with the economies or whatever, who's in charge? God's in charge. And what are we seeing in the Bible about that? That God allows the world to, to do what before Jesus comes back? Get worse. So you know what? If things even get worse, who's also in charge of that. God. And that may be exactly His purpose at any given time. The world is not just spinning out of control and we stand back, oh dear, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? God's in charge. Jim? I was reading uh, a while back in Oswald Chambers' book, and he says that we become most effective for the Lord when we run out of ideas and we're at the end of the line and we got nowhere else to go. We have to conquer this thing of, let's try to solve this ourselves. And when you give that up and you give it over to God in prayer, mm. whoa, baby, watch out. Mm. But God wants to illustrate the fact, though, that we are dependent on Him yeah. and Him alone as being that despot and that we will be most effective on our knees praying for His guidance acknowledging our weakness and our human uh, 
problem that we create for ourselves by trying to solve the problem ourselves. And that's what the early church was doing there. We got everything against us. Oh boy, let's go pray about it. And that, I, obviously, he made a big point to me with that reading, you know, about that. <coughs> We have to turn ourselves loose and present ourselves totally naked. In other words, we got no preconceived thoughts sure. or anything else going on. And that's how we become not only prayer warriors and powerful at that, but we also become servants that are useful to God in ways that He sure. wants us to be. And by doing that, we are doing His will and he will work hand in glove with us, and I've seen it in my life personally. Like I said, it took him 20 years in some cases, but by golly, he gave me the answer at the right time and place. Amen. And I will never, ever think otherwise because of that. Cornell? With respect to the admonition and encouragement to pray for prayer, maybe we should think of the advertising slogan of the famous athletic company, athletic products company, just do it. Mikey, just do it. Just yep. do it. Just do it. That's good. Oh, Mr. Uh, what's his face? I can't even think right now. He's worth about 20 million bucks. <laughs> and most of all of that has come from Nike, which has <laughs> slave labor. Isn't it interesting that he protests against slavery and racism <laughs> and everything else? And there's sweatshops turning out Nike shoes every day. It's awful. Kathy? Would you close us in prayer tonight? You can do that. Father God, we bow before you tonight, Lord, thanking you for this beautiful day and all your blessings. And first of all, God, we just want to confess to you now that we are a prideful, sinful people. We try to do everything our own way. We ask that you would forgive us for that, Lord. We pray that you would help us to make prayer our first priority, no matter what we might face. We pray for our election, Heavenly Father. It seems that there are people that seem dead set against you and your plans for the world, Lord. And I pray in this election, Father, that you would not give us what we deserve in America. We pray that you would have mercy on us, mm -hmm. that you would put a man in office, God, that would be your man in office, that he would be willing to pray to you every day for guidance to lead America. We pray as Americans, Heavenly Father, that we will always remember our roots. God, that we will remember that we were founded on religious freedom. And Father, we know that every freedom, everything we have in America is a result of your blessings on us. And Father, we just thank you for the privilege of just talking to you tonight. You've got People all over the world, Lord, praying and talking to you, but yet you have the time to talk just to a single individual and to 
listen to them pour their heart out to you, Heavenly Father. You know all about us, and I'm so, so grateful for that, God. I'm so grateful that when our hearts are heavy and we don't even know exactly what it is to ask for that you know and that you can grant our prayers, God, that you can, most of all, God, that you can give us peace knowing that you're in complete control of everything. I pray for the people, God, whose names are on our board up there, for Melinda and Shepherd, for the Brayleys, for Susan, for all the names, God. They all are hurting. They all have needs. And Father, I know there's not anything in this world that you can't do. I pray that you would reach out and that you would meet the needs of every person on the list and, and people, God, whose names are not on the list that need you tonight. I pray that you would make a presence real to them. Most of all, tonight, God, I pray that we as a group would resolve to become more and more people of prayer. We get in a habit, God, of praying during our devotion or over our meals, God, and we think it's enough. And I pray, Father, that you would make us people that would pray incessantly, that from the time we rise in the morning to the time we lay our heads down at night, that we would constantly be talking to you and seeking guidance from you for our lives. Again, God, we just thank you for all your blessings, blessings so undeserved, yet in your loving kindness and your mercy. You pour your blessings out on us. There's not any promise, God, that you've ever made that you don't keep. There's never a morning, God, when your mercies aren't praying you. I praise you for that. And now, Father, go home with us. Keep us safe. Hold us in the palm of your hand. And help us, like the people in Acts, God, to be bold witnesses for you. That at every opportunity we have, open our eyes to that opportunity. If it's a word, if it's a prayer, if it's a smile, whatever it might be, God, give us the grace and the power and the boldness to do it for Jesus' sake. Thank you again, God, for all your blessings. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.